Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Little Johnny Thunders Heartbreakers for you. This is Pat Prince, editor of Goldmine Magazine. Welcome back to the Goldmine Podcast. We'll be talking to Dave Thompson. Now, Dave is the author of about over 150 music-related books. He's also been a contributor to Goldmine Magazine since 1990. Uh, he was also the editor uh, and author for our price guides. Uh, Dave uh, helped Walter Lure of the Heartbreakers with his new biography, and Dave is going to be talking about it. Uh, Walter had his share of drug addiction, uh, basically the whole rock and roll lifestyle during the 70s in New York and London, and his biography is really filled with all the information you want to know about uh, that New York and London scene. Um, especially uh, anything to do with Johnny Thunders, uh, the New York Dolls, etc. Uh, you even find out information about um, Richard Hell, uh, who was in the, um, the Heartbreakers for a very short period of time. But anyway, we'll be right back uh, with Dave after this message. And now this advertising message is from Adam and Eve. This is for all our listeners who are in a relationship and want to add to it by going to adamandeve.com. Adam and Eve are an upscale specialty boutique for discerning couples. And if you go to adamandeve.com, you can find and get free stuff. Uh, We all know free stuff is awesome, but Free stuff to spice up the bedroom is even better, and adamandeve.com has it. Uh, You can select almost any one item for 50% off, and then they will load you up on free stuff. All you have to do is just enter the offer code GOLDMINE at checkout, Uh, G-O-L-D-M-I-N-E at checkout, and get 10 tantalizing free gifts. Uh, You can get a sexy item for him, a special gift for her, and a third item you'll both enjoy. And six free spicy movies as well, plus free shipping, which is always great. That's offer code GOLDMINE at checkout at adamandeve.com. Good afternoon. Here we have author Dave Thompson with what, your 150th book? This is quite... Um, I think it's it's more like 180th, but... Okay, that's... Quite a lot. (laughs) Well, it's called To Hell and Back My Life in Johnny Thunder's Heartbreakers. In the words of the. My Life. 
in the words of the last man standing. Well, maybe you can explain it. How did this project come to be? Um, well, you we, haven't said who the last man standing. Walter is. Lure. Um, Walter Lure. Did he approach you? How did that all um, come to be? I think actually my agent made the first move ah. to Walter. I had just finished working with Sylvain Sylvain on his book. Yes. Uh, There's No Bones in Ice Cream. And um, dodging everybody saying, what does that title mean? I don't understand. Um, we were able to hook up with Walter, who, as the subtitle makes clear, is the last surviving member of Johnny Thunder's Heartbreakers. Mm. But I do, have, uh, I do have a question for that, though, before you continue. Richard Hell was in the band, so he is still surviving. Yes, but he was only there for about 15, well, 20 minutes. Okay. Um, he wasn't there for long, and the, I mean, that original lineup was very much, Richard wanted something to do after television broke up, Johnny wanted something to do after he left the Dolls. Yes. So, it's like they pulled resources. It didn't work too well. Um, they didn't get a deal. Richard got bored pretty quickly. Mm. Um, there was a lot of squabbling over who was going to sing the songs and how many songs Richard could have on stage and how many Johnny could have. Mm. Uh, so it didn't really work. I mean, the Heartbreakers story really starts once Richard left mm. and really once they got to England. Yeah. Uh, they were doing very little in the U.S., uh, well, in New York. Right. Uh, just playing the same venues. Over and over. As often, yeah. Over and over and over. Then they got an invite to come to uh, come to England and tour with the Sex Pistols. Right. Their first U.K. tour. The Pistols were huge Johnny fans. Malcolm McLaren knew Johnny from his time with the Dolls. Hmm. And that's really where the band was born. Now, so, did you know Walter before you started the biography or um, help him with the biography? We met. We met at the time. I was a big Heartbreakers fan anyway. So I used to go to all the London shows and sort of hang out and do all these terrible things that teenagers do. And you knew Thunders. You knew him. You were friends, weren't you? Uh, I wouldn't say friends. We, you know, we knew one another. Yeah. I mean, I'd not actually seen him. I booked a show for him in London in eighty two, eighty three. Yeah. Um, more so I could get a friend on a support. But, um, <laughs> uh, so I mean, yeah, I I'd met him a few times, and he would say hello when he saw me. So uh, he probably read your previous book on the dolls. Um, Walter, yeah. Yeah, and okay. he was probably he probably liked that and thought you were the perfect person to help him with this. What would you say your involvement was? Um, would you call it? Uh, I don't know if you would say ghostwriter because it's really his thoughts. His it's kind of like in the form of a diary. So you just kind of guided him into the, the way to deliver it best, right? Um, it was sort of it was a mishmash of different things. Um, the way I like to do books like this is a few conversations, so I can sort of figure out their voice, you know, how they talk, how they would write, 
and then have them tell me stories or in Walter's case he handed over his diary from like 76 through 78 so I would go through that find the stories that I thought we should use find the stories that corrected the things that he'd been getting wrong in interviews for the last 40 years there was quite a lot of that hmm. um, cor correcting historical errors and really just letting his diary guide me and then writing it in a form that I suppose made sense as a book. Right. Uh, but, handing it back to him and saying, okay, waterfy it. Pleasing to the reader so there's not extra, you know, not rambling, I guess you would call because in a, memoirs or diaries there's often that rambling, getting off topic. Yeah, and you know, bearing in mind, you know, and he makes no secret of this, he spent a lot of that time under the influence of various uh, chemicals. Yes. Um, Hence the so reason he, why his, his memory... Diaries, <laughs> his diaries could get quite interesting. <laughs> well, I love, I love the first paragraph of the book, the introduction. I'm going to read it. We... We were seated in Hell's Kitchen, that is, Richard Hell's Kitchen, as opposed to the once notorious New York City slum. In truth, however, there was probably little to choose between the two of them. <laughs> <laughs> this is almost like, um, you know, when you go to join the Heartbreakers, you have to live up to this sort of... I guess, sleazy New York City image, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's living I mean, in Alphabet to... City. Um, I guess... You know, it's... The first thing they did was they let D.D. Ramon cut his hair. Yeah, that that was... Because he looked too much <laughs> like a hippie, I guess? Is that... Um, yeah. And, um, and, yeah, D.D. actually trained as a hairdresser. So, yeah. So that one that... <laughs> There's a nugget that you never really expect. <laughs> and then he promptly shut up some heroin after that. <laughs> Which... yeah. yeah, that's basically it. Um, what's really funny is before he joined the band, he worked for the, uh, is it the DEA or the FDA? Uh, DEA, I think. Yeah. Um, gosh, I've got the worst memory. I write the book and I can't remember a thing. Um, but yeah, his job was, you know, testing the purity of drugs before they put on the market. Guinea pig. Um, yeah, so hopefully he was able to sort of bring some of that expertise to whatever <laughs> he was taking later. Right. And he was in uh, he was in a band called The Demons and Bloodbath, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, Bloodbath was very much a sort of, here's my first band, uh, the way he describes it was the name was better than the group. Oh, and the name is god awful. <laughs> no, Sounds... the name is. Could, could you imagine a you know a band called Bloodbath? I mean, yeah, they'd turn probably be like Merciful Fate or something. Yes, and just be what? this screaming metal band. Death but metal. Yeah. Bloodbath is a great name. Ironically, yeah, I mean for the for that type of music, I guess he was trying to. Uh, especially what was going on in 1970s New York City, it was kind of a very risky, dangerous place. Um, yeah. And there was a lot of murders. There was a lot of muggings. I mean, he, he tells the story about he had a short-lived job as a taxi driver, and it sounded like a scene out of 
the movie Taxi Driver, where he was yeah, held up. Exactly. He was mugged. Someone put a knife to his throat, and he decided no more. Um, yeah. So imagine living in a city like that, which I always wondered about the music scene myself. I mean, it was a bunch of people that knew each other, but the New York music scene never had the, to me, uh, the excitement of, say, London or L.A., or even San Francisco, for that matter. I don't know. I I would disagree. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, because when you look at the bands that are actually functioning in that first wave, you know, the Ramones, the Heartbreakers, Television, Patti Smith. Okay. I mean, all of them. I mean, I would never have objected to, oh, God, I've got to go see Patti Smith again tonight. What a horror. <laughs> yeah, whereas I think... Yeah, if I'd been in San Francisco, it's like, oh, goody, I can go see the Grateful Dead. <laughs> or maybe I'll stay home and trim my toes. Well, um, I guess by the time I grew up, uh, you know, hanging out in the city, um, it was kind of like an aftermath. You know what I mean? Yeah, you were only 12 years old. Yes. And uh, too bad I didn't hang out with Johnny Thunders. <laughs> I think the New York scene was actually very exciting. Um, and I say this as an outsider. I was in London sort of yeah. looking across and I'd look at the gig guide and say, oh good, I can go see the Lurkers tonight. If I was at CBGB's, I could be seeing mm. Barry Smith. <laughs> yeah, the Ramones. I mean, all of that crowd. And then you had the Dead Boys came along. Um, I mean, there were, you know, there were bad things as well. Well, Georgia the grass there. is always greener, right? I mean... They were yeah. thinking about London, you know, when they were over here. So, the um, New York scene was more—it was more art-driven, I think. It, you know, it's wrong to think of it as punk rock because yeah. it wasn't. It was more of an art explosion. Like, look at Talking Heads. You won't probably define yeah. them as punk. Well, actually, Talking Heads were more like a chemistry lesson, weren't they? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but this does have. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say Blondie. You know, mm. sort of a great garage version of uh, the Shangri-Las. Right, I agree. Fronted by a squeaky bath toy. Right. I guess because I read so much as a kid how exciting New York City was as a scene, and by the time I grew up in the, you know, 80s, it was like, where is it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, a, I mean, London was the same. You know, yeah. we had that 17 and a half minutes when you could go out, you could see the pistols, you could see the downs, you could see the clash. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I saw the clash opening for Rugalator. And it's like, wow. who remembers Rugalator now? But, you know, at the time, you know, the clash, <laughs> it was great. You'd go and see these bands and you just took them for granted. Yes. Until they, until they had all become too big. Yes. And they were no longer playing the pubs. Yeah. And then you get the next wave of bands who, let's face it, were not as good. Yep. And then the wave after, and then the wave after, and you know, by the time you get to New York in the early eighties, yeah, it wasn't even waves, was it? It was sort no. of ripples. Yeah, that's all it was. You hope yeah. that a band plays the Palladium. You know, you waited for the Clash to play the Palladium, maybe. Um, yeah. Which is now gone. Yeah, London, London did the same. Yeah, you know, by nineteen seventy-eight, you know, the Clash were playing the theatres, the jam were playing theatres, the dam had broken up, the pistols had gone. Yeah. Um, 
the bus clubs were in theatres, you were just left with the detritus. Yeah, by the time I got to go to CBGB's, it was like kind of like uh, broken down cover bands playing. Yeah. Not, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. They were, it just wasn't the same, these unknown bands um, that would never make it at all. Um, I mean, one funny thing about the Heartbreakers' time in London, because they were generally playing smaller venues. Yeah. Um, you know, like the 800 capacity clubs. Yeah. Uh, and they were on the same circuit. We had um, both Cherry Vanilla and Wayne Jane County were over from New York at the same time. Yeah. And yeah, there were there were a lot of Americans just sort of on the scene. Chrissy Hind was around getting the Pretenders together. Yeah. And it was almost like little New York. Yeah. That part's exciting. And, yeah. And every so often, you know, Patty would come over. First time I saw television, Blondie was supporting them. Wow. <laughs> which was you know, quite surprising. You know, the Ramones played and Talking Heads opened for them. So we got to see all these groups. Hmm. But the Heartbreakers, they actually lived in London. So mm -hmm. they, were all, they were always around. If they weren't playing, you know, you'd run into them at clubs and things. Well, what made me laugh is that they cut um, Walter's hair to make him look more street tough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what the hell does that mean? <laughs> These guys really weren't guys who would pick a fight, you know, were they? I mean, no, not really. Um, no, but they, they exuded, I mean, between, because again, you know, different world, different times. New York, you know, New Yorkers had a reputation much like the city. Yeah. You know, they murder you every 12 minutes. Yeah. And, you know, they'll mug you in what they think is Times Square. Yes. So you go to the Heartbreakers, and I mean, they looked good. They looked like a street gang. Yeah. And they, you know, they were very, very aggressive musicianship. You know, the songs are all like these short, sharp, nasty little things. You know, born to lose. Were they were they like so, that though in person? Weren't they kind of? No, I mean they. Uh, no, they were well, kind Walter, of reserved. Walter, Walter was a pussycat. Johnny, Johnny, if you caught him in the right mood, could be he could be fun, or he could just be sort of silent and sullen. Yes. Uh, Billy and Jerry, I didn't really have much to do with. Yeah. Um, you know, Walter and Johnny were the front men, and they, yeah, when you got them right, they were, they were fun. Well, uh, there are some juicy tidbits. Uh, for instance, the rumor that Iggy Pop turned Johnny Thunders uh, onto heroin or smack. You... Yeah, when they were in L.A., with, uh, when the dolls were in L.A. Uh, Is it true, though? Or, ask them wouldn't you <laughs> uh, so, I mean the, the full story is in Sylvain's book yes and the way he tells it is Johnny and Iggy walked into a room together when Johnny walked in he was clean when he walked out he wasn't right so <laughs> whether it was Iggy who did it or you know someone else in the room we will never know unless Iggy tells us do you think Johnny Thunders could have had a um, longer life, larger career, if he didn't get turned on to drugs like that? He could probably... Eh, it's hard to say because, you know, it's leukemia that killed him. Right, right. Um, unless you follow sort of all the more scurrilous Con rumors. Conspiracy theories. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe. But would he have made the same music? Mm. And had the same, I hate to say, D 
whatever it was that led him to make the music that he made, right. would he have done it without heroin? Interesting, perhaps. Um, yeah, he, he <clears throat> might have lived and become some sort of new wave James Taylor, which I don't <laughs> think would have done so much for the legend. Well, it depends, you know, because, you know, artists suffer from various, you know, from depression and stuff like that, so you never know. But, well, yeah, I mean, we we could have replaced heroin with, you know, <laughs> yeah. emotional condition. We could have put him on the spectrum <laughs> instead. But I, I've i never been one for sort of wondering what would have happened if yeah. he hadn't taken drugs. Because right. it ruins history. Very often, you know, the drugs were very often a part of who they became. In fact, he wasn't... He he wasn't any innocent. I mean, he dealt drugs before that, so... Yeah, I mean, that's it. I mean, Johnny had one sort of a real job in his life, and he worked as a soda jerk when he was 15. Right. What's um, interesting, that was his... Dealing drugs was his way of making a living. And yeah. it's interesting that aspiring musicians or artists deal drugs to make a living before they can even support themselves with their art. Um, and before they can... And then when they do make it, ironically, some of them become addicted to the drugs. drugs to them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I mean, for Johnny, from, I mean, just, and this is, you know, really basically just from talking to people like Sil and Walter, um, for Johnny, dealing drugs was the way to make the money to buy the clothes that made him look good. Yes. Um, even before the dolls, Sylvain and Walter both used to run into him in you know different circumstances. In fact, one of the running jokes through the early part of the Walter book is every gig he went to, there was this one kid he'd see who just looked fantastic, dressed fantastic. They never met, they never spoke. They you know, occasionally they might nod to one another, right, and that was it. And then the first time he went to see the dolls. There was that kid up on stage playing guitar. Right. Um, so Johnny, Johnny was always very image conscious and very glamour conscious. A huge yeah. T Rex fan. Right. Huge uh, humble pie fan. Right. You know he he understood stagecraft and mm. musicianship and just what you needed to be an eye catching rocker. And he, you know, he dealt drugs so that he could actually live up to that. Walter was kind of initiated into it, right? I mean, even yeah. though he he made that transformation from, I guess he kind of calls himself a hippie, but I don't know if he really was. He was at Woodstock. Um, yeah, but so was everybody, weren't they? So was I, Johnny. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, um, Walter then made another transition to the business world, right? Yes. A stockbroker. Um, band broke up. You know, he came back to he came back to New York State. You know, he was broke. He didn't know what to do. His father suggested that he and his brother you know, get jobs. Um, found them. Found them jobs. And Walter suddenly realized that he had a real head for you know Wall Street. Hmm. And. Well all of a sudden, he was he was a big wheel in banking and investments and things. Well, if you think about it, it sounds kind of a jump, right? But 
from rock and roll to Wall Street, but it has that can have that same adrenaline boost, right? Being on stage I, yeah. and watching the ticker, you know. So yeah, I, I, I guess you know. Yeah, I, yeah, once once he um, he gave up some of his more rock and roll habits. Hmm. Yeah, which he talks about in the book. I mean, yeah. he really did sort of flourish there. Mm. And I love this one line, well, not a direct quote, but there's one bit I love that he he was still playing in bands and people he worked with would come along. And there would be this guy who, you know, they knew in a suit and tie mm -hmm. up on the stage in like his sort of dirty rock and roll clothes, <laughs> you know, playing Chinese rocks. <laughs> And he kept the clothes side by side in the wardrobe. One side was work and one side was rock and roll. <laughs> but, I mean, if I looked at a picture of him, you know, how he looks now, and I would never say this was, you know, you could never tell. Um, no, he wore it well. Yeah, yeah. He was, I mean, he was a good-looking lad to begin with. And yeah. I think he, I mean, he looks after himself. I would be, we'd be talking pretty much every day during the first part of the book. Yeah. And we could only talk when he returned home from tennis. <laughs> every morning he'd be out playing tennis at, God knows, a crack of dawn. Right. You know, get home at 10 o'clock. And it was like, wow, you know, a rock and roller playing tennis. Mm. You know, aren't you meant to sit in coconut trees and fall out? Yeah. <laughs> but... He's the last man standing, unlike his uh, brethren, that, uh, except for Richard Hell for the brief period of time, which, <laughs> which in the book was that. kind of odd story about uh, Richard basically kicked everyone out of the band, and then yeah. <laughs> the band just started again, and Richard went yeah, and... They, <laughs> he, sacked, he sacked the whole band, and they kept going without him. <laughs> That's one of the funniest rock and roll stories. That's a very spinal tap. <laughs> but when you think about it, the idea of you know Johnny and Richard in a band together is pretty uh, surreal. Because yeah. uh, even musically, they are so far apart. Yeah, I mean, Richard doesn't even play anymore, right? He just does spoken word and... Yeah. Right, right? His, his book was a lot of fun, though. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed that. It's one of my favorite rock and roll memoirs that I wasn't involved in. Well, I wish you all the luck with To Hell and Back. You're, you're... Thank you so much. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for everything. Uh, this is Pat Prince, editor of Goldmine Magazine, the Goldmine Podcast. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, go to goldminemag.com for exclusive content and a percentage off subscription price in both print and digital. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.